to the Weird Sisters podcast, your source for Discworld discussion. My name is Manning, and I was born to run. Joining me is Danny. Ready for a night at the opera. And Liz. I'm back in black. I hope you all are ready to rock, because our book this month is Soul Music. I actually, like, didn't read the back cover on this one before I started, um, so... I was like, okay, obviously, like, music stuff, but I wasn't really expecting death to be involved at all. Hmm. And then I was like, oh, soul music. Well, the cover had, like, I just thought it was a weird rib cage with a really long neck. <laughs> um, until I realized, no, that's that's supposed to be a guitar, you dummy. You and I are both using the 25 Years of Discworld cover. Mm-hmm. supposed to be the original. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if we were reading from, like, the original art cover... We would have been able to suss out that it was about death and music. Yeah, I have, I think, probably what's the like original cover with the Josh Kirby art, and it is a death on a motorcycle flying through the air. I'm looking this up right now. <laughs> it's pretty great. I see it, oh my god. I'm, I'm actually really, okay, I am seriously glad that I didn't have that cover art. Really? Because it was just that much better without it. I hit that plot twist to the other, I hit that, not not even a plot twist, but I hit that scene, like, either this morning or yesterday, but very <laughs> recently. <laughs> and it took me a minute to get it, but it was just like, that giant yes moment. Oh my god. I thought it was just more like, evocative of the vibe of the book. I didn't think it was gonna be actually like... A moment that happens in the story? <laughs> yeah. With that, let's get into the trivia section, as jotted down by the secret extra sister, who heard it on the grapevine. Published in 1994 and coming in at just over 130,000 words, Soul Music is the 16th Discworld novel and third in the Death series. The book is jam-packed with references to music from the 50s through the 80s and surrounding culture, with particular focus on the Blues Brothers and James Dean. Of the non-rock references, the country of Lamedos is a parody of Wales, and its name is Sodom All spelled backwards as a reference to the town of Laregub in Quite Early One Morning by Dylan Thomas. The regional accent, speaking with doubled L's, is a direct reference to the Welsh language and the Celtic from which it derived. There is also a mention of the... Oh god, here we go again. My mind is going for German. There's also a mention of the Eistedfod, a traditional Welsh poetry contest that has since evolved and migrated as far as Australia. In Ankh-Morpork, there are jokes about a one-armed bandit and a fruit machine, both of which are slang terms for slot machines, often found in pubs like the Mended Drum, which also acquires a clockwork arcade machine that plays a fantasy version of the game Space Invaders. The Clatchian Foreign Legion section is a reference to Bo Guest by P.C. Wren, which is also the source of the punny nickname Bone Idol. The Querm College for Young Ladies seems to be based on the North London Collegiate School founded by Francis Mary Buss, whose Discworld counterpart is Miss Eulalie Butts, and the music festival at the end is a direct reference to Woodstock, which is remembered as a free festival but in reality just had too many gatecrashers to stop. Soul music was translated into German in 1996, Dutch in 1997, and French in 2000. In 1998, it was collected along with Mort and Reaperman into an omnibus titled The Death Trilogy, which had a French translation in 2011. The 1999 audiobook, published by Isis and read by Nigel Planer, lasts 11 hours and 11 minutes. Cosgrove Hall Films produced an animated adaptation of the story in 1996, Starring Andy Hockley, Deborah Gillett, and Christopher Lee. The book ranked 151 on the 2004 Big Read survey. It was the annual Discworld play for Ook Productions in 2016, following the 2014 adaptation by Youth Music Theatre UK. While we're still talking facts, I just want to take a quick moment to say, one, it's a fact that Black Lives Matter, and two, that fact is especially appropriate to bring up in discussion of this book, because rock and roll music would not exist without black artists who have been largely erased from the public consciousness, 
And sadly, this book is no exception to that, as I plan to talk about a little bit more at the end. Alright, anything before we go into the summary? Uh, hmm. I think I'm good. I'm good. I am excited. I am good. I'm gonna make my mouth do the thing. <laughs> okay. We open in the Quirm College for Young Girls, where the headmistress is speaking with one of her students. Ladies and gentlemen, may I introduce Susan Storhelet! <laughs> uh, for those who missed out on Mort, the death of Discworld had an adopted daughter and an apprentice, the two of whom fell in love and became Duke and Duchess of Stohelet, a small but wealthy city. Susan is their daughter, and despite not being genetically related to the Grim Reaper, has some unusual qualities that can only be attributed to her heritage. Now, as we and Susan learn from Headmistress Butts, Mort and Isabel were in a tragic carriage accident. Susan is inconsolable. Literally, this trouble child cannot be consoled because she just accepts that her parents are dead without apparent grief. This part like made very apparent that Susan is very intelligent, but uh, also she can get to be a little detached. And I think that uh, sets up her arc in this book really, really well. Yeah, this this opening bit did kind of throw me off because this was the part that I had initially attributed to her relation to death rather than uh, all the magical shenanigans that happen later. So it, it kind of... I made these assumptions about her character and then those were turned on their head so I had to regrow to like her throughout the course of the book, which was an interesting experience, but I really wish I could have liked her off the off the bat. Yeah, I think I know what you mean. It seems like her arc is a little bit confused. We'll probably talk about it at the end. The pieces of a character arc are there, but I'm not quite sure they're arranged in the best order. Yeah. I I personally could ad would attribute that to the uh, the point of view jumps that the that these books employ so frequently. We're we're missing that that clean flow from uh, revelation to acceptance to adventure. It just kind of happened. I think that might be also because the focus was meant to be on the rest of the characters, and she was just. Um, the interim between what's going on with death and what's going on with the music. Yeah, and we kind of wish this was more her story. Mm -hmm. It feels like it should be. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's like there are scenes missing that would really push her into the spotlight. Definitely a topic for later as well. So, far away from Susan, in the rainy country of Lamados, a young bard named Imp E. Selin is on his way to the Bright Lights Big City. I think he, like, I think he really ends up becoming a blank slate, and we get, a, like, little glimpses of his personality. Like, he passionately loves music, and he has very firm beliefs about music in the world. But I feel like his personality is ultimately kind of erased, as we'll get into in a very short minute. I'm a victim of taking things literally. I thought he was an imp until he got to the city. <laughs> I had a very different picture of him in my mind than than most, and I had to very quickly rectify that once people started talking about him with more description. <laughs> yeah, I definitely agree with you, Liz, that he's not the strongest character we've seen, but, like, circumstances do conspire against him in that regard. There's a running gag of characters asking if Imp has elf blood in him, which I did not get at first and thought it was talking about sort of fashionable androgyny until it was pointed out to me that they're asking if he's elvish. Ah, uh, okay. Elvis. Oh. I did not make that connection. <laughs> that very definitely like changes my um, like imagination of what he looks like. I mean, I just, I don't know. I imagined him more looking kind of like scrawny, like lean 70s kind of rock star. And then um, now that I've got like the Elvis attachment to him, I'm like, my brain is struggling. <laughs> I mean, Elvis was lean and a little bit scrawny or slim when he was. A, like... Yeah, I guess Elvis in my head is always like older Elvis. 
Yeah, well, that's the Elvis that we see in cartoons and things, right? Thank you, Lilo and Stitch. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> While all that is happening, Death has the black and crazy blues. He goes to visit a holy man in search of answers to life's big questions, or at least to learn how to forget things. So Death's subplot in this story is that he's in mourning. That's what that was all about? Okay. Okay, okay. A million connections just make, got made and a thousand <laughs> things just make so much more sense. Yeah. His daughter and son-in-law just died. I thought they died, like, years ago. <laughs> I think, actually, I can see, like, felt a similar thing when I first read this story. Something about uh, Susan's introduction put me in mind that she had been at, that she had been basically at a boarding school for most of her life, and so had been informed that her parents were dead at a younger age, and then just kind of grew up into this apathetic young lady, or logic-driven young lady. And I think that's because before she gets properly introduced, there's a mention of a drawing from a six-year-old girl that's like all black and clearly Susan's art, mm -hmm. right? And then that leads pretty immediately into the scene of the carriage falling. And then Susan is 16. So chronologically, that's supposed to be the carriage fall is connected to the scene of her being 16 years old. When it kind of reads like mm -hmm. it's connected to her being six years old. And also, like, she enters the office twice in that same scene. Like, she, she starts out already in there, and then there's a bit where she enters in. So it's kind of confusingly, like, laid out. Yeah, that, like, definitely threw me off, and I had to go back and reread it, because I was like, what is happening here? I feel like there was definitely meant to be at least one scene in the middle there. I really appreciate the way that grief is kind of portrayed in this book, because it's messy and complicated and un like not linear and it can be destructive and it's very very honest in that way and especially because we ultimately see both Beth and Susan have to like kind of work through that grief in their different ways I don't know it just feels like really personal and intimate I guess like Susan I think is mostly in the denial and anger yeah and like a little bit of bargaining you see later on if I was smart, I would have, like, written down and plotted out how her scenes map onto the five stages of grief. But, mm -hmm. you know, this is the world we live in. Yeah, and I think that's all right, because I think for a lot of the book, she's kind of just stuck in that first stage, which I, I like I've seen with people I've met in real life, where they will go for months, if not years, without, like, really processing the loss of somebody that they love. And then something happens and all of those feelings come up and they need to deal with them then. We also have to take into consideration that, as Death says, he remembers the whole of history, past and future. So he always knew that this was going to happen. And I think on some level he probably expected it to help, but it doesn't. You could draw some comparisons with uh, Dr. Manhattan and Watchmen, who experienced all of his lifespan as a single moment yeah and i think there's a difference between like knowing what's gonna happen and actually going through something and like the act of knowing like probably even changes how you experience something because i would like kind of get the feeling that maybe i would feel like i shouldn't feel the way like i shouldn't feel upset or something of grief because i already knew but I don't think I would, like, suddenly not feel upset because I already knew I was going to lose someone, you know? But, like, even beyond that, we all know that everybody dies. And knowing that fact doesn't really change the process of mourning for us. In the limited time I've had to connect this section of the book to being a story of grief, I've noticed we have a pretty unique way to see it. Certainly, there's... Uh, we're looking at the different stages in both Susan and in the proper death, but we're also seeing it through the lens of a child. She's 16 and still very much has that it's not fair mindset and an ageless elder. So we have someone who lost their parents and someone who lost their children at the same time. So it's a, it's a pretty interesting um, way to frame this sort of story. It certainly has, it certainly isn't new, but it's, 
a unique take considering they're both they both act as death unique but not new yes yeah yeah you're not wrong mm. so in Ankh-Morpork Imp runs afoul of the Musicians Guild and the ridiculous fees they charge for licenses to play music here we meet Mr. Cleet an embodiment of bureaucratic capitalism it's been stated in this and previous Discworld books that the relatively smooth operation of the city is largely thanks to the self-regulating nature of the guilds, but Mr. Cleet exists as a criticism of that system. It's mentioned that he has moved from guild to guild in search of power, because the goals and ideals of any organization are, to him, secondary to his ability to extract value from them which is a recurring theme in many Discworld villains. Pratchett definitely does not, like, hold back on very quickly setting up that Mr. Cleet's the bad guy. He's, like, almost comically evil. I think part of the success of that is that he's not the main bad guy. Yeah, he's, like, the B-plot villain. I have to say I did not understand. I still don't understand him, even hearing that. He just sort of existed to me and was an annoyance. Which I hope doesn't say too much about my own views on, you know, dealing with bureaucracy, because it exists. Being unable to put two and two together, I think, is going to be a theme for me with this book. <laughs> and you said that you finished this, like, today, right? So you haven't had much time to sit with it. It takes a little while for your brain to, like, run through things and make the connections. as what fridge logic is all about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know, like, I finished this, like, two or three days ago, um... And I, like, was sitting and working on something last night, and then I was like, oh, I get Susan's arc now, and just, like, had it click in my head, and I was like, okay, I feel a lot, like, better that I got that now. (laughs) And sometimes I know I've been, like, sitting in these, and I'm like, oh, I feel like I did a really bad job reading this book, I guess. Speaking of sitting, Imp, a dwarf named Glaude, and a troll named Leas decide to defy guild rules and form a band, but Leus accidentally sits on Imp's treasured harp, forcing them to visit a mysterious music shop and acquire a guitar. If I had one guitar. <laughs> Yay. I have been I've been hearing about guitars like nonstop lately. Being at home a lot more often, my mom has repicked up her acoustic and my brother keeps going on about how he wants an acoustic bass, and I'm just out here being the woodwind person, <laughs> going toot toot on the flute. And I have zero grasp of music theory or like composition structure. Believe me, if I did, I would have like written up the some of this stuff to be in song. <laughs> nice. Oh, back in Quorum, Susan gets an unexpected. I'm not keeping that up. <laughs> <laughs> Back in Quirm, Susan gets an unexpected visitor. A skeletal rat in black robes carrying a tiny scythe. We for- completely forgot to mention this character when they showed up in Reaper Man, but to be fair, they weren't a major part of that story. This is the Death of Rats, a counterpart to slash extension of the Death of Discworld. Less human and more duty-bound than the main Reaper. I like the death of rats. They're adorable. Uh Uh-huh. Yes, very. I want, like, a tiny stuffed death of rats I can keep in my room on my bedside. That that must exist. It must, right? If it doesn't, somebody take note. But I think the death of rats, like, poses a really nice contrast to who death is a character at this point. Because I feel like he's very similar to what death was like the first time we met him a little bit less um assisting in the deaths than when we first met death yeah mm-hmm. oh it exists he's not bony but there is a death of rats plush on uh discworldemporium.com <laughs> sorry for that cut off i just really love the rats the death of rats is kind of its own character yeah definitely for sure i i think he's a, a bit more of a, like a rule follower than the real death but it, it feels like it's speaking to like a, a piece of death that we like a, a piece of death that we used to see a lot more often or maybe the death that we see in books that aren't about him mm-hmm. yeah i want to pat it on the head <laughs> <laughs> 
this series, like, you don't really think of Discworld as a whole as being goth, but it is very goth. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it, it doesn't help that in one of my other Discworld, uh, Discworld, not Discworld, in one of my other Discord servers, there's a, uh... <laughs> There's a, a running joke that a rat is a friend, so if anybody in that server calls somebody else a rat, th the usual response is, Aw, thank you! <laughs> <laughs> so, the death of rats, along with a raven named Quoth, try to explain to Susan the situation with her grandfather, but at first, she refuses to understand. As I was reading this, I was having difficulty getting a handle on Susan's character. There are a couple elements of her personality that I didn't find particularly coherent, like the way that she rejects school but values education, or how she wants a normal life but has a notable disdain for ordinary people. In the end, I think you can put a lot of this down to her just being 16. Yeah. I honestly, I feel like I was probably not terribly different from her when I was 16. So, you know. I will say I never understand characters... Who want to be normal. Mm -hmm. Me neither. Every normal person I know wants to be special. Every person I know just wants to be special in a different way. This was about the part where I was like, oh, she's like Susan Pevensey from Narnia. And then it was made very clear that no, no, she is not. <laughs> she's also a little bit like Susan, the doctor's granddaughter in the first season of Doctor Who. Ah. Again, not really. Which I mostly just say because I wanted to bring that up, that comparison, which Terry Pratchett is on record as saying is a coincidence, mm -hmm. but could be an unconscious connection. I mean, like, death does live in a place that's bigger on the inside, and <laughs> like he can travel through time and stuff. Mm -hmm. I often find references to other materials uh, once I've finished writing out a little bit of my work and just being, oh, wait, no, it's like that. That is the creative process, right? Mark Rosewater had a great bit. He talked about creativity and imagination is the ability to spot connections between unconnected things and use them to make interesting results. Mm -hmm. I just uh, just recently saw an art tutorial that was how to make a character that's your own inspired by another character. And it's like, change three details and then like mix up the color palette and add... A few details that aren't in the original character and boom there you go i mean there's this really really great book that i had to teach or recommend that i read when i was in college i'm kind of blinking on the title at the moment which i'm i am very frustrated with myself about but it basically the point is no art is ultimately original but that's a good thing because that means that you can kind of do whatever you want and not feel bad about it because yeah so what somebody's already done it but you haven't done it yet and you will do it a different way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, just by the nature of you being a different person than the original author or artist or whoever. I have half a segue, but now I'm not. Nope, it's lost. Anyway, Susan continues rejecting the supernatural, or I guess metanatural would be more accurate, until Binky, Death's white horse, arrives and takes her to her grandfather's realm. I had forgotten about the desk in this scene, <laughs> how it's basically a prop replica of an actual desk. But it and the tree swing later on remind me of a point I have brought up previously, that death as a character really resonates with people like me who have learning disabilities. Speaking just for myself, there are certain things that I just don't understand intuitively, but a lot of other people, more neurotypical folks, just get. Mm. And I have to spend time learning them. I sometimes arrive at the wrong conclusion. Yeah, that's that's me with conversation. I have to learn people like very, very painstakingly. But at the but on the other hand, like I get technology very easily. For me, it's the biggest thing is languages. Like I cannot figure out like grammar and stuff of languages that I'm not mm -hmm. that I haven't grown up using. Computer programming as well falls into the same like camp. Mm-hmm. That actually makes a lot of sense, too, with, uh, with death. I actually um, finally got re-diagnosed with ADHD. I have my, my report sitting in my uh, laptop bag right now. Yeah, I've got well, that as well, so high five. 
I think the scene, I, I think what this scene highlights that really resonates with people especially is that despite how not human death is, he is very human and so he's really easy to connect with like that. Especially after the uh, the Color of Magic side episode that we did, I had we had like that beautiful visual for uh, Death's Realm. So I was able to overlay that onto this book and it was very nice. Uh, especially coupling with that uh, that expansiveness that it had. Just this, this wonderful monotone gray scale where the floors are so large. All the furniture is re- regular sized, but it's too far away. Like a physical dolly zoom effect. For anybody who doesn't know, the dolly zoom is uh, that effect like when they have the camera facing down a hallway and it simultaneously gets longer and shorter at the same time. Soon enough, Susan meets Albert, Death's manservant. He tells her more about the duty that she has inherited, but she realizes that if she opens her mind, she can remember how it works, along with the times that she was brought here as a child, memories that she has repressed. There is discussion here about just the limits of the human mind and how that affects what Susan can understand about her life and her grandpa. Yeah, because, like, Death has the fortune of being like a not like a non-person so he just is what he is and he knows what he knows and he doesn't have to like fit that into any kind of mold but Susan unfortunately was in this case was raised a human and now is having to adapt her understanding to fit all this new stuff about death in Oh, and also, if I may digress a moment, there's a delightful gag in here that's a, also a relatively understated music joke. It was mentioned briefly in Pyramids as well, but in this one it's shown that Albert has a, a towel with the initials Y-M-R-C-I-G-B-S-A, which stands for the Young Men's Reformed Cultists of the Icker God <laughs> Belshamparoth Association. Not to be confused with the Young Men's Christian Association, better known as the YMCA. <laughs> this is a nice little gag in there. Just spelling out how it leads together for anyone who might not get the joke. That would be really hard to do a dance to. <laughs> You'd have to get the legs involved. <laughs> mm. So, Susan heads back to the Discworld to start taking over the family business. I don't know if the scene with the old man passing away is a music reference... But the Valkyries in the battle scene do sing a line from Wagner's Die Valkyrie. So that's fun. Yeah. The Valkyries scene did kind of seem a little out of place, but it does go to show uh, pretty well exactly how out of her element Susan is. Not quite the same way that Mort was, but yeah. Yeah, I think the one, like, benefit of the scene is that it, it shows us that the world is, like, way bigger and has way more going on that we haven't even seen yet, especially in, in relation to death, which seems pretty cut and dry, but, you know, clearly not. Absolutely. Like, we focus pretty exclusively on, like, a small portion of the Discworld, but it's stated throughout that there's lots more of it. Mm-hmm. Speaking of some of those other places, Susan's grandfather has joined the Klatchian Foreign Legion. Now, you might assume that joining a military organization to forget is all about the constant hard work of service. But in fact, the Klatchian Foreign Legionnaires seem to have an unexplained curse that makes them all forgetful. And death is immune to it. After some time, and following a battle where he single-handedly wipes out an attacking troop, Death leaves to seek a different way of forgetting. Back in Ankh-Morpork, Imp, Glod, and Leus have their first show, performing at the Mended Drum Tavern. There, Imp is scheduled to be killed in an axe-throwing accident, and when Susan arrives, she is determined to save him. But when he plays his guitar, something else protects him. The music, electric and alive, takes over his life. Now, when this happened, because you two you remember the events of, like, moving pictures, right? Yeah. For the sake of anyone who missed that episode and or book, movies came to Discworld and threw them basically Cthulhu monsters. Did you expect a similar thing was going to happen here? I think I was, like, ultimately, because 
I think up to this point, they had been kind of like suggesting something's not quite right with the guitar, but it's very vague on what's not right about it. Once, uh, once a lot of this started, yeah, it, I got that growing suspicion that there was going to be something else there. And I probably, with the things that I tend to read, the kind of stories I tend to enjoy, I should have gotten that the music ran a lot deeper than, uh, say, the influence of the creatures from the dungeon dimensions, but those were the sort of things I was expecting. I feel like I was probably expecting something similar as well the first time I read this. When, like, I should have realized when that gets brought up as a possibility that that wasn't going to happen then, because, like, the two other times we've seen something like that, once in Reaper Man and once in moving pictures there wasn't really the anticipation of it right it took the characters by surprise it would have been i think more comedic if it hadn't if they're like it's coming here it comes and then it did would it though just because like we're not used to that kind of a a shock comedy like oh wow okay no this actually is happening okay and then something else kind of subverts it and that's what we didn't expect perhaps but also it kind of would have gotten a little bit like repetitive Mm -hmm. Following the show, strange things are happening every day, especially at Unseen University, the College of Magic. There, the faculty of old fat men begin to act like rebellious teenagers, much to the chagrin of Arch-Chancellor Mustra Ridcully. Most affected is the Dean, who is the primary, but not exclusive, subject of the James Dean references, as well as a bit where he invents sturdy blue cotton pants, (laughs) which he implies are going to be called Deans. Yeah, I appreciated that. <laughs> I just have the man on the flying trapeze running through my head. <laughs> a, a, a danning young man in some jeans. Okay. I can never get the lyrics right. I feel like we see so much of the wizards, like the older wizards interacting with each other. I kind of appreciate Rude Coley having to like go down to the younger wizards who he has, like does not understand at all and be like, hey, you guys, I need your help. I, 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 have, I have a thing to say about Ponder once... Once he once he shows up, shows up. The band, fresh from their performance, have to ask where do they go now. Leas the Troll decides to rename himself Cliff, while Imp takes the moniker of Buddy, appropriate since his last name is Welsh for Holly. <laughs> oh, I knew there was something in there I was missing. He does say in the story that his like name is Bud of the Holly, because that's just Welsh. Like he's just named in Welsh. A language that gets a lot of, like, jokes made about it, but those jokes are not stopped being funny for me when I realized that it's, like, some of the history of the, like, subjugation of the Welsh people and stuff. So, Mm -hmm. anyway, that's not what we're talking about here. The band also decides that they need a piano player, so Glaud enlists the aid of the university librarian, who I will remind you is an orangutan. Just means he has really good reach to reach all of the keys. (laughs) Struggling to figure out her new position in life, Susan decides to go see her grandfather. She may not know where he is right now, but she knows one place he definitely was. And so, she takes Binky back in time to the events of Mort. This is the first and, I believe, only actual flashback in the series. Flashback to the stuff that we saw, at least. Albeit one in the text not just the narration. I think the scene did a nice job of like filling up any holes that might have existed for anybody else, but also being like, if you have read it, having that scene just pick up right there is feels very meta. I was I was not in the uh, the Mort episode, so I will leave that one to you guys. Will I reread it, knowing that it get it got referenced, and I should go back and refresh myself on the other ones that I missed? Absolutely. I'm assuming there will be more references to other books the further we go, so I should probably catch up. Well, yes and no. I think this one specifically, just because the existence of Susan is very much derived directly from the events of Mort. Yeah, this book in a sense feels like a very true sequel to Mort. It doesn't really depend on having read Mort the way that the mm-hmm. light fantastic depended on having read the color of magic yeah but it's not really a standalone book mm-hmm. well yes he could 
I think you definitely like miss out on some stuff though, some context. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. At the same time though, like there's certain aspects of it that might feel a little bit repetitive if you read this one, especially right after Mort, but like the, even if you're just doing the the death series, Reaper Man would space them out a little. And also give uh, Death a little bit of context of he he does this a lot more often than it seems. But in the whole series, he does this a lot less often than it would seem. The Death series is mostly about Death not doing his job, but that's only a part of the Discworld series as a whole. So Susan witnesses the climactic fight between Death and her father from the end of Mort, where Death dismisses Mort as his apprentice and sends him and Isabel back to the realm of the living. With them gone, he and Susan take some time to talk, discussing him as a grandfather, and about music taking over Buddy's life, plus the duty. The discussion of Buddy's life being taken over by music is focused on his lifetimer, which I don't know if we've talked about. Basically, everyone on Discworld has a finite amount of time to live, and those are represented as hourglasses in Death's house that can be just picked up and carried around. We'll come back to that. So, Death asks Susan if she thinks she can handle the responsibility of changing lives, since she says that she wants to figure it out. And Susan asks Death if he's too scared to do it. Upset with her grandfather, Susan returns to Ankh-Morpork to see the next show by the band. Also in the audience are several enforcers from the Guild of Musicians, who want to break up the band, literally. Plus, Ridcully, who watches Susan beat up said enforcers. He assumes that she's one of the Tooth Fairies, who we learn in this book are an organization spread out across the disc. I think Susan ends up kind of detaching from humanity as she steps into Death's rule, so I think her interactions with Ridcully kind of help bring her back a little bit. And the same thing when she finally gets to meet Buddy. It's like, I think they kind of ground her and make her seem a little less of like an amorphous being and more of a person yeah oh it's an interesting point you bring up liz because i think that she becomes more human once she starts doing the job and like actually interacting with people because up until that point it seemed like she had been mostly trying to not interact with people as much as she could yeah i think that's really fair and, like, I kind of wish this story had played into that a little bit more, you know? Like, if her first, like, role as Death, she had been kind of dispassionate. She kind of was, but been a bit more dispassionate and just, like, doing it the way that Death does. Mm-hmm. But, like, grown a little bit more of a soul, to put it in a like, not great way. Yeah, but I understand what you mean. I think maybe why those interactions are reading that way to me is maybe because those are just very like in-your-face examples of her demonstrating that humanity with other humans. But yeah, I think there's a lot of like potential in there for her to learn how to be a little less apathetic and detached and really like embraces being a person. She doesn't need to be all super logical like she she needs to be. And also she clearly has, the text implies that she has a crush on Buddy. Mm -hmm. Yes. Mm -hmm. Which is like, it's whatever. Yeah, it feels like not a whole lot really comes of it. I'm I'm willing to play the romantic here and say, yeah, it, it could they they have more chemistry than uh, than other Discworld couples that we've met so far, simply because of uh, mem- time shenanigans. <laughs> I think ultimately, though, I kind of appreciate that like their relationship isn't really the point of the book. Like, Susan is very clearly, like, infatuated with Buddy, but for the most part, she just, like, kind of interacts in the space where he is, but it's not like the story is them developing a relationship. Uh, Would it be fair to say that she maybe likes the idea of him more than she likes the person? Yeah, I think that's fair, because I kind of interpreted part of her infatuation with him to be, uh, she's a teenage girl, and he's, like, a rock star, and... You know, she just has a bit of a crush. Also, a large part of it is that he, to her, represents the thing that she wants to do as death, which is figure out a better way to arrange the whole process of people dying and everything. And she wants to 
make him her project, basically. But he does not fit into it the way that she wants him to. And I think that that really helps her come to terms with the fundamental limitations of what she can do and who she is. Her attempts and ultimate failures with trying to, like, change Buddy's future is reflective of, like, the processes she needs to go through to understand the death of her parents. Following the show, the band is joined by the recurring sausage vendor Cut Me Own Throat Dibbler, who offers his services as manager. The librarian refuses to sign one of Dibbler's contracts and becomes the Pete Best of the group, as in the one who quit before they got famous, retiring to work on a project based on a doodle by the legendary inventor Leonard of Quirm. I'm a little bummed that we didn't get to see more of uh, the librarian in the, involved in these antics. Hmm. Perhaps, but I feel like the librarian does get in a lot of the stories. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Even when it's not really relevant for him. And, like, sometimes it can feel a little bit contrived. Here, I think it was fine. Like, I didn't really think he was necessary in Men at Arms, for example. Yeah, that's fair. He's just a crowd favorite. Yeah. Also returning to the university is Ridcully, who has captured a bit of the music and is bringing it to the High Energy Magic Building, where it will be examined by Ponder Stibbins, the youngest member of the faculty, who was a supporting character in Moving Pictures and Lords and Ladies, and has now taken on the role as the university's primary magic researcher. He and several like-minded students take the bottled music and examine it with the aid of Hex, their new thinking machine. While we were recording, the uh, a comparison sort of showed up. Like, there's a similar relationship between Ponder Stibbins and the Arch-Chancellor and Susan and Death. Like, you have these old... I don't want to say old world beings because death is very much ancient and Ridcully is just old. Um, but both Susan and Stibbins are very much of the newer generation where Susan relies on logic and in a different way so does, so does Stibbins. He approaches uh, magic scientifically. And that, that does actually tie into the whole theme of the book with, uh, with music and, and rock and roll, because if anybody knows uh, the 50s, it was a, there was a really wide generational gap um, between the, uh, the big band 40s sound and the 50s rock and roll with the kids. If, if, I, re- if I recall correctly, that's like where the whole uh, rebel generation sort of stemmed from well i have some thoughts on that later as they do that examining across ankh morpork this new music with rocks in begins to inspire the citizens to create their own unlicensed music while dibbler secures the band a new gig playing in the cavern a troll bar he also hires an assistant a troll named and composed of asphalt poor guy (laughs) Now, I have a question for you two. Mm-hmm. Why does Asphalt have that name, like, besides it being what he's made of? He's flat. He is also flat, yes. I don't get the reference, though. I'm not sure. Because he's, you know, street-like. Avenue-esque. Reminiscent of a thoroughfare. He's a roadie. Oh, okay. <laughs> I was like, what? <laughs> okay, okay, I'm on board now. <laughs> As the band negotiates with Dibbler, Buddy demands that they set up a free concert. Dibbler, seeing dollar signs and the possibility of people coming for free, buying food and merchandise, agrees that it will happen once the band gets back from their tour, because he's arranged for them to hold concerts in other cities of the Stowe Plains, and he plans to make a boatload of cash off each one. It's kind of astounding how often Dibbler is like, a good business person while simultaneously his character is that he's kind of just a really awful business person 
he will often acquire a lot of money mm-hmm. and then lose it. Yeah. He, he jumps at every opportunity and sometimes it's it works and more often than not it goes terribly wrong. Yeah. I guess that's a good explanation for it then. Sooner or later something's bound to hit the wall and stick. Yes, but usually those are his sausages. <laughs> Sorry, I saw the opportunity and had to take it. No, please. That's wonderful. Speaking of things sticking, I guess. Nope, that doesn't work. I have Some people have a gift for segues. I do not. Speaking of segues, Ridcully, Stibbins, and the students perform the Rite of Ashkente, which summons death on the Discworld, and they get Susan. She's irritated by the wizards patronizing her, but Ridcully at least treats her human enough to invite her to breakfast, during which Susan realizes that what the music wants is to be listened to. This scene, where Susan and Ridcully take time for breakfast, is one example of something that gets included in many Discworld stories, the characters taking some time to rest and recover. I bring it up because there was a very good comic about these moments, where the artist talked about how validity it was for them that Discworld characters, like, take a minute, you know? We're inundated with media that shows the heroes constantly rushing into action, and it affects our psyche. I myself often feel guilty whenever I'm being less than 100% productive. And it's refreshing to have media where the heroes, like, sitting down and having breakfast is just part of the story. Yeah, I, I definitely, like, connect with that, especially, like, where I'm at, like, personally in life. Like, just feeling burnt out because of always going and going and going and then forcing yourself to take a moment and then feeling like so good that you have just gotten a chance to rest you know the past few days i have just been waking up and going downstairs and drawing basically non-stop for several days straight and then this morning i sat down and i picked up my pen and nothing which thank goodness i'm i'm at a place now in my own path that i'm able to see that notice that I'm doing that, and say, okay, no, today is a break day. Hopefully I'll be back to drawing tomorrow because I am so inspired, but... (laughs) Yeah, and especially because, like, because so much of media and just, especially American culture is about being 100% productive and doing things all the time, is that I think we're kind of starting to hit a point culturally where we realize how unhealthy that is. And people are trying to actively work against that and encouraging others to do the same. I hope that is a trend that continues because it would be so good for us as a society. Coming back to Discworld, you could make the argument there's a hint of sexism in the way that Ridcully is so unintimidated by Susan, but the narration does indicate he's more interested in just being able to talk with somebody. He doesn't really have anyone he can just chat with. Everybody else is always is all affected by the music, and also, she is a a teenage girl rather than a a, a skeleton. <laughs> she has a she has a skeleton, but she is not <laughs> but she is not one, which I find much less intimidating. <laughs> but yeah, I definitely did get a, a couple like warning sirens in my brain when this scene is like starting to go, just because, you know, I'm not sure about how Ridcoli is going to act around Susan. And, but I do think it like ultimately came to a good place where he was just kind of being a mentor to her and helping her step back from having to feel like she has to, she has a duty and she has somebody she needs to be right now. And she just got to be a teenager. He, he may be odd, but he is still a school principal. (laughs) He definitely has a life of his own in a different way than a lot of the other characters. On the other side of Ankh-Morpork, Death is getting hammered in the mended drum. Eventually, he passes out, and in the Ankh-Morpork tradition, the patrons rifle through his pockets and throw him onto the river. (laughs) From there, Death joins a cabal of beggars. And even if he can't forget things, he finds a strange comfort in being so thoroughly ignored by society. Discworld has a not super great view of the homeless. Yeah, there are definitely some problematic parts of it. 
they they kind of exist as their own own separate entity in this whereas uh, you can take whereas like we would take a more humanistic hum a more human approach looking at them like what is their situation how did they get here what can we do to help they exist as their own faction in in the disc world in Pork. Hmm. i mean they do have a guild mhm they have a guild and with that guild they have a a distinct lifestyle like I suppose any of the guilds would have the Assassin's Guild, the Fool's Guild, have their own distinct lifestyles. The band leave for their tour, but not before Cliff and Glod make a quick stop at the Street of Cunning Artificers to commission something special. Now, out on the road, they draw enormous crowds, earn the ire of authorities, and Glod redecorates all the hotel rooms. Which is a relatively <laughs> understated gag. For those who, like me, who didn't get it at first, it's because he's inverting the rock band tradition of destroying hotel rooms. I just liked the fact that he just redid it. <laughs> it's like fresh wallpaper and everything. <laughs> and the, the poor hotel staff are like, no! Our aesthetic! <laughs> Susan travels through time again to the night when her parents died and death talks with her about mortality. He can extend people's lives, putting things on pause like he did with Albert. But that's not a human life. Morton and Isabel knew what was going on. They accepted mortality. Like, with Buddy, we do see what happens to people who don't die after their time runs out. They sort of stop being themselves. And with Buddy specifically, part of that is just he's been possessed by the music. But outside of it, he's hollow and lifeless. And I think that's part of what is going on with him. Yeah, definitely. And I think this is the point in the book where it starts to become obvious to Susan why you can't just have everybody live forever like there needs to be an end point and there's nothing wrong with there being an end point even when it hurts i don't think susan ever really thought that she was going to let everybody live forever but but i know what you mean yeah i think she just had a sense of like well why should good people have to die like why can't they just keep living and if i have the ability to make that decision why can't i just make that decision without considering that maybe people don't want to, or maybe that there are consequences for doing that. Running out of options, Albert takes his lifetimer and returns to the Discworld. He only has 19 days left, but that's plenty of time to find death, right? <laughs> I like Albert. I just, I, just, I just, I like Albert. Following the tour, the band returns to Ankh-Morpork for the free festival, which has accumulated a spectacular crowd. But before they go on, Glod and Cliff have a surprise for Buddy. His old harp, which they've had repaired and is as good as new. With it, Buddy plays a song for the crowd. A folk song that brings them to tears and reminds a passing death of where he needs to be. He sings a Welsh translation of Johnny Be Good. Now that you've said this, it, that it's kind of just okay. <laughs> there there goes my uh my, my the emotions that i had for that song did I'm i nearly sorry. cry reading about its description yes <laughs> was i expecting that twist no it wasn't even a twist it was blatantly stated i just had to go plug it into a translator but yeah before i ruined it for you what did you think of that scene i, I near i very nearly cried yeah it was like a very like emotional scene where like it was kind of like there was like this thin wire and everybody was just like waiting for something to happen. And it was like tense, but peaceful at the same time. But I, I appreciate that like Buddy's self returns to him when this like piece of his past and this thing that he's had a very deep emotional connection to is returned to him. It also doesn't help that my Spotify blah, that my Spotify playlists are mostly bouncing between the score and other like fight the power kind of rock music and like pop music and Celtic Woman, Fawn, other uh, the Whale and Jenny's folksy bluegrass stuff. Those are my two ends of the spectrum. <laughs> Somewhere in there is Florence and the Machine, but it, it, <laughs> this that scene sort of like hit me in the face with my own musical taste. So you're like the exact target audience for this story. <laughs> it hurt me. 
I don't know about you, but getting getting smacked in the face by a uh, a nearly thousand song playlist is rather painful. Over near the mended drum, Albert, investigating for death, nearly gets it when a thief knocks him out, smashing his life timer in the process. Death, returning to his job, finds Albert and sends him back to the realm. But he can't just go anywhere right now. And he needs to because the band is fleeing the festival, accidentally stealing $7,000 of profit. So they are chased by Mr. Crete from the Musicians Guild, Camiondor Dibbler, and soon enough Susan, having figured out that the music plans to turn Buddy into a legend by plunging him into the ravine, the same ravine where her parents died. So following that emotionally charged festival, we have a more comedically charged instance of the band fleeing with some money that for a little while they didn't even know they had, followed by a troll gang, followed by the Musicians Guild, followed by Susan, followed by Seamot Dibbler, and then it just gets better from there. I'm told this is a Blues Brothers reference, but I haven't actually seen that movie. Yeah, me neither. I, I had to go downstairs. I'm like, Mom, you won't believe what's happening right now. So, Death heads for the Unseen University, where he finds the librarian's secret project. A hot rod motorcycle, which he borrows along with a coat from the Dean. Did you get that lyric reference? Oh. There we go. I mean, that song <laughs> plays at work all the time. <laughs> like, at least once every two days. That's a lot. Yeah, sometimes we get songs that play like three times a day. That's worse. <laughs> I have a feeling. Mr. Crete and the Musicians Guild Enforcers fall into the gorge, but Susan manages to save the band, sacrificing the guitar in the process. But the music reforms it and demonstrates its power to those gathered. It is the rhythm of the universe, the blood of existence. And then death arrives, taking the guitar and playing a silent chord, the first note of the song that ends the universe. The music, desperate not to, to die, makes a deal with death and gives Imp back his life. So the universe is put back in order. Mr. Creed is still dead, but Imp and everyone else are okay and life returns to normal. Susan heads back to the Quorum College for Young Girls, and, having become more in touch with her humanity, finally begins to grieve the loss of her parents. Although, soon after, she learns about a boy working at the local chip shop. Elsewhere, as Death settles back into his duty, the music finds another host in the universe, and the band plays on. So... Would you say that Death played a secret chord, a rather cold and broken one? I mean, if you wanted the hallelujah chorus. Yeah. Although Death playing that chord kind of came out of nowhere for me. It could have been established that Death had, like, some musical history. I thought he was going to cut the strings. That, like, also probably could have worked. Yeah, like, I think the imagery was cool, but I think, like, we were missing a step or two, I think, to have it, like hit full impact so yeah that's soul music what did you think it, it had its ups and downs like there were quite a few scenes that i really liked especially the ending i liked how it's like the climax of the book with the with the carriage chase and the the festival that's what it was building up to for a really long time and then it hit those emotional notes really well yeah i think it has some really great moments and some like really emotional or exciting moments but i think it just feels a little it just needs like another editing pass yeah not gonna lie so far this is my least favorite of the death series like there's a lot to like but it's also got so much stuff going on that it ends up feeling kind of disjointed and scattershot a lot of elements that don't go anywhere like susan has friends at school who are introduced given character and personality and then just dropped like, they could have been part of the story, like fans of the band or something. Also, and I hope you'll forgive me for talking a little bit about upcoming books, but dwarfs have some complex gender politics that are kind of contradicted by the presence of Gloria, Susan's dwarf friend, in this one. We'll, we'll come to it. 
I do want to mention that this one does give us some variation in the personalities of trolls, who have mostly been sort of thuggish and thick. Chrysoprase, the troll Mafia Don, is a lot more soft-spoken and conniving than a lot of them, while Cliff is pretty friendly and better at thinking ahead than, say, Detritus. Of the characters, we did mention that Imp, aka Buddy, has the least on-page personality of any one-off protagonist, but it's largely the result of him functionally dying in the middle. Yeah, that kind of puts a, a, a weight on a character development. But I do really like how the trolls are portrayed in this book. Like Asphalt especially, I think he ends up being very relatable uh, like as a audience kind of stand-in, I guess. Yeah, Mr. Tibbler's not going to like this. <laughs> and then it, even the zombies in, what was it, Reaper Man? You, there, there was even, even the undead have more personality than, than Buddy did, but at least they were still them. Buddy's personality is mostly just his accent. Yeah. Susan's arc has really strong like ideas in it, but it's not quite there for me. Like we talked about, about her story is becoming human through being death for a while. And that's present, but it could have been more clear. We already talked a bit about why and how. The moments that she does like embrace it, especially at the end where she like is sobbing, is it's glimpses of what could have been. This book is good. It's like really good, but it could have been amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like when it works, it really works. It's just sometimes it doesn't. Yeah. It feels like it was trying to tell two stories at once and tripped over itself. Yeah, like both of these kind of could have been stories on their own. I think a little bit too much of this is the band stuff. Like even if they just cut out the subplot we didn't really mention of this one band of teenage metalheads who keep changing their band's name to different other music references. They weren't really necessary, and I kind of wish that more time had been spent on Susan. Anything else? I've got a tirade that I'm going to go on. Yeah, most most of all, what I have to say is in reaction, I suppose, to your tirade. The only thing I would have to say here is that I have uh, close personal ties to a band that keeps changing their name. They're planning on making it a running gag that they're changing, <laughs> that they keep changing their name. This is definitely a little tangent thing, and I don't think it'll make it in the episode, but I just think it's very funny. But uh, my boyfriend is a musician, so he has a bunch of musician friends, and one of them has a band uh, that was named Dale Earnhardt Jr. So that when it would get put on posters, people would go, Dale Earnhardt Jr.? And we'd go to the concert and be like, oh, it's a <laughs> band named that. Um, but they were like... They started to get kind of successful, and so they were like, well, we can't, like, keep using this guy's name forever, so they changed it to Junior Junior, and then, like, tweeted about it or something, and Dale Earnhardt Jr. tweeted back at them and said it was totally cool if they wanted to keep the name the same. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. That's rad. It's like a fun little story. Oh, real quick, did either of you have a favorite band reference in this story? Uh, there were so many references at the end. Why didn't I highlight them? Uh, while you're thinking of yours, mm. I'll tell you mine. It's We're Certainly Dwarves as a reference to They Might Be Giants. <laughs> okay. That was when I was like, I know that's a reference to something, but I'm not like getting it. Okay. That, yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure. My issue is like, I will like know things, but my brain doesn't always make connections to the things that I know. So like, like that one, like I could recognize it's a reference to something and that I probably knew the thing it was referencing, but the like steps between those things is not going to happen. I liked the, uh, it, not a music reference, but the, uh, this is your brain on drugs <laughs> at the end. <laughs> yeah, various other ones. Um, the supporting bands, teenagers, they do acquire a deaf leopard at one point. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. I do appreciate that joke where they're like, oh, yeah, we have the, uh, the like legs of a leopard and like the body of a leopard and a head of a leopard. And actually, it's just a live leopard. Of the like offhand ones and you instead of you two. Yes, that was what it was. Mm-hmm. That's the one. <laughs> well, it took me a minute to get what was actually being written in the text. Uh, dwarves with altitude as opposed to attitude. Oh, uh, yeah. Mm hmm. Born to Rune on the back of uh, the Dean's jacket. This isn't a reference, but Vetinari liking to just read sheet music was a thing. 
Yeah, it's like an interesting little character trait. If you two don't have anything else, then I'll go into my little rant there. Yeah, go for it. One thing I mentioned near the beginning of this episode is that this story does very little to examine the history of rock and roll beyond the superficial. And in doing so, it bypasses most of the black artists that made the genre what it is. By positioning the music as a cosmic force, this book kind of ignores the political origins of the genre and actually reduces its meaning. Rock and roll isn't just bratty teens rebelling against their parents. It's rooted in the rejection of racist institutions and the affirmation of identity outside of puritanical moralism, inspired by genres such as jazz and gospel music, which were created by black musicians as an expression of their experience in a world that then and now too often fails to recognize their humanity. This isn't something that just exists. It was a push back against a specific institution. And that's something we need to remember. Like, this is all surface level stuff. I'm no music historian, but I do believe that media is political and reducing a movement to its aesthetics does a disservice to everyone involved. Yeah, I think there's a lot of like beautiful and important context to all of this. And it's hard to translate that into a story that does not inherently share the same politics as our world. But not mentioning it doesn't also feel like the right decision. Like, there's prejudice in, like, aspects and elements of racism as we've, like, known it. And I think Terry Pratchett feels like he wants to depict things honestly and empathetically. Some stuff you just don't, you need to examine a little bit more closely, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. True. He never comes from a place of punching down, right? Not intentionally. Yeah. Yeah, the, um... There's that uh that little little hypocrisy that I've been seeing a lot lately is people turning against sort of the music that they grew up with as teenagers because their messages are, you know, too much for them to handle at whatever stage of life they're at when such bands include Rage Against the Machine. Although it is quite enjoyable to see those artists, you know, uh, snap back and say, I have a political science degree from Harvard. On a like lighter criticism, not nearly enough queen references. Oh, agreed. Agreed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the uh the the ensemble the ensemble band, uh they almost they were like a couple thoughts away from becoming the Rolling Stones or the Who. Yeah, they were the Whom for a half hour. <laughs> I forget where I was going with that. I think we're about good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it's late in the evening, so I want to say thanks for the memory to my co-hosts, uh, to Willow Carter for our theme music, and to all of you who know who to listen to. If you want to give us some money for nothing, check out our Patreon, where for as little as a dollar a month, you can become eligible for the patron shout-out. This month, we say thanks to Robin, our small God Save the Queen. <laughs> thanks, Robin. I'm, I'm making a heart shape with my hands. We're coming up on One Hot July, during which we will be reading interesting times so join us for that liz would you be so kind as to cut favorite footnote loose of course rats had featured largely in the history of ankh morpork shortly before the patrician came to power there was a terrible plague of rats the city council countered it by offering 20 pence for every rat tail this did for a week or two reduce the number of rats and then people were suddenly queuing up with tails the city treasury was being drained And no one seemed to be doing much work, and there still seemed to be a lot of rats around. Lord Vetinari had listened carefully while the problem was explained, and had solved the thing with one memorable phrase, which said a lot about him, about the folly of bounty offers, and about the natural instinct of Ankh-Morporkians in any situation involving money. Tax the rat farms. Alright, that's it for us. Thank you, good night. Until next time, the The turtle turtle moves. moves!